You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. These next two weeks will be a quarterly retreat for me where I will take time off and go travel somewhere to reflect and re-strategize for the coming quarter. And because of that, I will be providing you with two episodes that are blast from the past. So if you're new listeners, you're in luck. You don't have to go back to the archives. Um, but if you're also um, a continuous listener, you might actually appreciate re-listening to a certain story. Maybe it'll inspire you give you a different perspective that you missed the first time around or you might have just completely forgotten this person's story so that might also be a, a nice reason to listen in as well so without further ado here is one conversation that is a blast from the past okay so today's guest tom loudon um is the labs manager at we work we work is a new york-based startup that is growing in huge popularity it's practically all over startup news as the biggest co-working space company and they have offices practically all over the world i was just in vancouver for christmas break and i saw a ton of WeWork offices all over vancouver as well and they're definitely all over toronto as well and prior to WeWork, tom built out a skill set in fundraising for the public sector and after having explored a number of different opportunities uh he decided to say okay well i think i'm gonna try something different and he became the inaugural team, maybe even, I dare say, like the founding team of Toronto's Creative Destruction Lab, which is practically an incubator based out of the University of Toronto. And after that, he went to become an investor and operator with Boat Rocker Ventures, which does like entertainment-based investing. So slightly different from what people consider to be traditional venture capital. So that's really interesting when we get into it. And he brought to life Deneen Coffee Shop, my favorite. Um, I've been a happy coffee drinker at Deneen since day one of opening so this was a really fun conversation for me to even get into and so Tom's had a very fascinating career it's just been one filled with entrepreneurial spirit and I really hope you find it as enjoyable and exciting as I did so without further ado here is my interview with Tom Loudon Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have Tom Loudon, the labs manager of WeWork Labs Toronto. Hey Tom, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Daniel. And so for the listeners who may not be familiar with WeWork, um, given the generation of the listeners, I can't imagine that they don't know WeWork, but some of them surprisingly do not. So for them, how would you describe what WeWork is and what WeWork does? Well, I think from a strictly brick and mortar standpoint, it's a co-working space. Um, that's global in its scale, uh, but it's also building a community of freelancers and entrepreneurs and trying to reduce the friction around small business and getting office space. So basically allowing you to focus on your business as opposed to your lease and your coffee program and keeping the lights on, making sure that you're actually doing the thing that you love to be doing. Gotcha. And I was surprised when we first chatted about when you were telling me how a lot of the clients tend to be now enterprise clients do not just startups. Yeah, there's been a, a large growth of uh, kind of the, um, like that standard, like large uh, Fortune 500 company. I think 
I think it's like 30% of the Fortune 500s are now in or have WeWork space globally. Wow. Yeah. So it's a, it's the fastest growing segment for our customer base. Um, but at the same time, that's why, you know, my program, WeWork Labs, is there to go and counterbalance that and make sure that we're giving back to or helping startups as much as possible. Gotcha. And so for WeWork Labs, is there a kind of target market for you guys? Uh, well, yeah, it's really any entrepreneur. Um, I mean, predominantly in the technology space, but that's not to say that um, we want to look at like CPG companies, companies with physical products. Uh, but basically, companies that are starting out, they're in, you know, they're either three to seven employees and they're figuring out how to go and capitalize their business for the first time, whether that's through venture capital, um, through uh, like trying to raise your, their seed round, or they've just received capital and now they're trying to figure out what to do. So it's, uh, I know that across the board, we help companies with their ideation, but I, I think our sweet spot and where I want to focus is companies that have an idea in and around their product, um, but now they're trying to figure out which market, who's their user, who's their customer, and how do we go and actually scale that idea. Gotcha. Yeah, I think um, that it's an interesting value proposition. So when, when you're providing all these services, is there an additional fee for that? Or is it more like I'm signing up for WeWork, but I'm part of like a WeWork Labs division? Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's the same pricing structure as anything here, which kind of varies in and around a desk. Um, so for WeWork Labs, it's $600 right now um, per month per desk. And that's a dedicated desk. So that's a desk that... Um, you can, you've got a filing cabinet, you can lock your stuff in, um, you can bring in your monitor, all sorts of the, that stuff. Um, and that's pretty comparable or it's a pretty good deal compared to the other dedicated desks here in Toronto. Um, and the, the thing that kind of sweetens the pot is on top of that, you get a level of programming and mentorship, um, from me, uh, as I try to help you grow your business day to day. And then you also get access to, um, 20 over 20 other labs globally where you've got a desk and an equivalent tom labs manager there to go and help you grow your business if you decide to go and expand um or grow within a market or you're looking for funding in a particular space yeah and and i think with more and more companies also shooting to be remote this kind of creates a middle spot middle ground where you can be remote but um you kind of have a, have a still have a dedicated workspace, a community, and a lot of support beside you. Like I think when we were first talking, the thing that immediately popped into my mind was, yeah, because a lot of companies, even tech startups, who want to be in hardware, have to constantly tra- travel to Asia, and there's cheaper manufacturers there. And knowing that there's a WeWork office there that you can just go to, um, probably takes a lot of the stress off. Yeah, and and on top of that, it's I think you also have that labs manager there, so. For for example, there's a company coming in uh, later on this week that's from Israel. They're a robotics company. And so I just got an email from the labs manager from that Israel location. I believe it was in Haifa. And um, it had the three asks, hey, Tom, what can you do to help this company when they're here? And one of them was to go and help find uh, recruit um, uh staff and, or possible employees from different robotics um, 
like departments in universities and I'm much more well positioned to go and do that than a small startup in Israel who's in robotics. So the fact that my local connections can go and help facilitate a connection for them is a is a big ad and it's something that I'm really excited for for the companies that I'm finding because now I can go and reach out to all of these other labs managers and provide them with the opportunity to go expand like expand on a global scale. Mm-hmm. And it it sounds very much like an incubator service where you don't really need to take equity or anything though. No, no, yeah. no, no. So it's it's strictly just a um, a revenue or like rent. That's or I, well, no, just more paying access to a, a membership. So. Um, for us, there isn't a need to go and try to take a piece of the business and that complicates the relationship. It complicates um, like our incentives being aligned with the company. And right now they're perfectly aligned because we want these guys to grow and we want to add value to demonstrate to that company that as they scale from 5 to 10 to 20 to 100, that they should be doing that with WeWork. Mm-hmm. And so before we go into kind of your... Uh, business accolades. Um, you mentioned last time we spoke about how you you're a foodie. Yeah. It, uh, in your opinion, what's the uh, what what's kind of, what's the threshold like the benchmark to classify yourself as a foodie? I don't know. I, like I, I know there's a, like there's probably two schools of thought on it. Like either you've got to be um, you've got to uh, like be trained as a chef or you make your own food, but I know tons of people that are just as passionate about food and they don't know how to turn on their oven. So for me, it's just like blind passion. I just love food. I think it's, to me, one of the the best uh, things to connect with someone over. Um, one of the reasons that I got into cooking specifically, moving, like transitioning from the guy who just loves, you know, to Instagram his food at a restaurant to Instagramming his food at home was I just loved being able to make a meal with someone um, because it was so much more finite. I mean, everything that we work on in like at, at any job, it just seems like that project always seems to linger on and on and you never really have any like actual end point to what you're doing because every time you do something right, it's like, okay, well, let's continue to grow this or let's go and, and build this. And in contrast, you make a beautiful piece of, you know, you make, you slow cook ribs for 12 hours. There's a finite moment where you get to see these juicy, beautiful lacquered ribs and you get to eat them and you get to eat them and enjoy them with a bunch of people. You get to make other people feel great. And, uh, and that's nice because I, I think it contrasts, not, not to say that we're not trying to build amazing things, but it's like, it's nice to actually get to celebrate and, and reap the rewards of your hard work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and so, do you have? Are you are you one of those uh, hardcore Instagram power users with hundreds of thousands of fans? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I my my Instagram feed is mostly it was mostly food. You can see when I had a, or when my wife and I had a baby daughter because the number of uh, baby photos is skyrocketed. So it's it's a good counterbalance now. It's more of a a father blog, father uh, father meat blog, I guess. Um, but it's been, uh, no, I, I just love, I, I just love food in general. Gotcha. And th- this love for food, um, was it instilled earlier on? Like, did you want to be a chef when you were a little no. child? No, I just, uh, like we always, my family would always have, uh, like just a strong Sunday night dinner culture. Okay. And, uh, 
And I remember like always loving that. When I went out to university, um, I realized that we were just eating, <laughs> constantly eating out all the time. Didn't know how to do any of this stuff. And and knew that there possibility because I'd grown up in a family with, with good food. It was like, okay, well, there's an opportunity to go do this. I'm going to learn how to figure out food. And because I, I think it's like figure out how to cook. And, and I know that's kind of a fundamentally like common thing, but I don't think a lot of people actually try to put focus into building their meals. And that's why there's so many different options that are revolving around reducing the friction of, of, like cooking in general, whether it's you just order food, you're going to pick up food, or you're um, or you're being given all of the ingredients, and you know your hand is being held while you go and cook all these things. I think there's a reason that that's all there. It's this underlying like passion for food. I I think I'd fall uh, stark contrast to um, the founder of uh, the what's the name of that um, that sludge that. Uh, that they Silicon Valley company that's got the um, oh, the name escapes me now. What's the product? I'm trying. To, oh, it's like named. It's Soylent. That's it. Oh, Soylent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sludge. <laughs> yeah. Well, like the, his whole concept was is like, oh, eating is just a waste of time. It's a waste of productivity. Therefore, like I'm gonna create something that allows me to never have to eat again. I'm just gonna take this. Weird soylent. Like I, I don't want to be in that world. I want to be in the world where, where I, I'm, I think the the European, like uh, my European ancestry is, you know, making sure that I still have a siesta or try to fight for a siesta and like a nice large meal. So, yeah, I think I think there was an article about how someone did soylent for a full month or two months and then they they got heavily depressed and you know this it's not a cause and you know cause and effect relationship but there's still a lot of correlations and i'm but i'm still sure there's a huge impact from not yeah enjoy from eating i don't know yeah it's like removing some component of humanity i think you're it's gonna mess with your brain yeah you know? yeah no i totally agree um your ancestry Loudon, where's that from uh it's scottish scottish so uh yeah, the it's some some town in the middle of like northern Scotland. The town of Loudoun is where we're from. Oh, and, okay. Uh, and I don't know much about it. I know that my great grandfather went and visited there and sent a telegram to my grandfather, his, his son, um, to like just saying, you know, stop. There's a reason that our ancestors left here. Stop, because it's probably just rainy and just terrible, but probably beautiful as well. You know, it all depends on what your version of uh, acceptable, I guess, rain is. Yeah, I think I was reading about how I think Scotland actually has some amazing um, scenic like trails that these hardcore kind of adventurers actually go to, and these are, you actually camp out, and oh. it's like multi-day trips and. Um, it's, I think it's one of like the key like core achievements. Like there was this British guy who's like climb climb. He's like the youngest guy to climb Everest or something, and he he's from the UK and he does a lot of trekking. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Scotland kind of came up. Um, and so if we kind of take a dive into your career, like you went to Queens, you did business there. Yeah. Did you? Why did you pick business? Is that something you always had an interest in? Um. Yeah. My uh. Like. My grandfather had been prominent at Molson, and so I'd always been kind of inspired to go do that. And then I remember looking at all the different programs for university, and 
Queens Commerce was like the hardest one to get into. So I was like, okay, well, that's where I'm going to try to go and get into. And then um, lucked out. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was definitely yeah, like I'd say outside of any family pressure to be an engineer because my father was an engineer. Um, it was, you know, pressure to go into some sort of specific stream in undergrad. Um, and Queens was, was a great, my, my, both my parents had been there. Um, and then the commerce program was awesome. Yeah. And so I guess you, you related more to your grandfather than your father. <laughs> well, well, it was like kind of a compromise cause he was a, an Ivy grad, uh, my grandfather. And so, uh, so it was like kind of. I either appeased both of them or I let both of them kind of down. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, find, finding that middle. And it seems that that kind of influence might have um, still had an impact since after school you went to, your first job was as a brand manager at Care Operations, which is kind of, it's a CPG company. Yeah. And stuff. It owns restaurants. And so um, I'm wondering, did you have that inkling to, as, uh, uh, I guess, buttoning foodie in university to think you know i want to be in the restaurant business and yeah yeah and I, I think like that's one of the reasons why caro is interesting to me like all of the brands i kind of knew um i got to work on the kelsey's brand um but i think what i i learned there is like yeah i, I do love food but i didn't necessarily want to go and market the food that was coming out of of Kelsey's, not to knock the experience, but it just wasn't something that I had grown up with or resonated with, and I didn't really want to make a burger that I was going to sell to somebody that probably didn't need another burger. Yeah, I think um, my my first internship in university, I was doing business development for a media company. Did I tell you about that? No. Okay, so it was for a startup media company. Like they were, they were trying to make magazines um, that like digital digital magazines where you do click on um, like a clothing item then it would lead you to the Amazon thing where it, you could buy it oh cool I don't think it really worked out but it got a lot of funding from some Chinese companies, oh really I think yeah so this was in Vancouver yeah um, and I was in business development which is a very nice way of calling you know cold calling sales yeah um, <laughs> and so you know I'd be doing hundreds of cold calls and getting a lot of fuck yous uh, <laughs> from people saying what kind of scam is this yeah and this was in like 2010 and so I Still then, like, putting a magazine online just was not common, I right. think. Um, and so, and I didn't even believe in the product. I just couldn't get around it. It was just a job that yeah. I took on, didn't even know what the startup was. And that's when, for me, like, it hit about, if I'm ever going to do sales or pitch something, it's, if I don't believe in it, it's going to be really hard for me to eat the shit and yeah. go on. Well, because you're going to spend all of your day, like, a good chunk of your day thinking about this stuff. And if you're not totally 100% behind the company that you're working for, then you're going to have this odd or terrible dissonance because you're spending all your time promoting something that you don't actually believe in. Um, and the result's going to be that you're just not going to be happy. You're yeah. spending the waking hours of your day dedicated to somebody else's dream. It better be the right thing, right? Yeah, no, totally. And so after Kara, uh, you went to join MS Society and fundraising and I think the thing that caught my eye about um, these two transitions was Carrie spent about five months in and MS you are about nine months in. And there, I find that there is a stigma, especially in like the business world, um, just because that's the world that I'm used to where a lot of my friends, they're in 
places they might not like and they but they say i'm going to stick it out for two years if i don't do it for two years and people are going to think it's weird and so i have to stay for two years yeah. and i'd always challenge them why, why like it's so arbitrary two years doesn't really mean anything you could have amazing experiences in five or six months and or like have really bad experiences in two years like it doesn't really tell how much a person grows in like a two-year span what did you think about any of that when you left care after like five months yeah like it's a it is a tough thing it, there's definitely a stigma there and something that um in your head uh you really start to worry about um but it's something that i think a lot of founders and startups do is just fail often and fail fast right and so if this isn't a good fit then um, then you should be moving on to the next thing. And it wasn't, like, Kara was, wasn't the right fit. The MS Society was more, it was a junior position in the fundraising world. And in order for me to be looked at from a development and fundraising standpoint, I needed to put a brand on my name. And so the, the like, working, it was actually, it was, a, and it was a fun experience. I was helping essentially cold call and then run the MS readathon. So I get to go to all these schools and promote kids to read for raising uh, research into multiple sclerosis. Um, but yeah, it, it, like one, you should be the moment that there's some inkling that something isn't working out, you should be like cutting off the limb <laughs> because uh, otherwise, it's just going to be it's going to grow and be more and more of a distraction. And that that goes the same for, you know, when you're building a team, if there isn't any like fit, you shouldn't be trying to go and make this thing work. You should just be like removing that part and moving on. Um, but then also going into each of those roles and understanding or recognizing what you could be getting out of them and then framing your your time at that organization around that instead of around, oh, well, just an arbitrary two years seems comfortable, right? I, I could I could be there. Um, so for me, going into like one, Kara wasn't the fit for me. And then two, um, the MS Society was more, well, I needed to get my fundraising chops. I needed to understand kind of the, I guess, like in any or like any industry, you spend a whole bunch of time learning like the lexicon that communicate like what people talk about and at a certain point you understand that um, that language and that all of a sudden allows you to open up to a whole bunch of opportunities I think you know a lot of the people on your podcast have their CA and the whole concept of the CA is really helping you understand the language of business the language of finance and then once you've actually understood it you know you've gone through your Mr. Miyagi moment of auditing all of these companies, you start to realize, oh, okay, well, this is how I need to communicate this piece to um, to this business, or this is how I approach this business problem. For me, the MS Society was understanding the world of like philanthropy and fundraising, and, uh, and it helped vault me into a role um, over at UHN at the Toronto General and Western Hospital Foundation, where I was able to go and start to try to look at making larger impacts um, through corporate partnerships and like external events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it, like you alluded to this, it's like the um, having that intent in mind of what what am I trying to get out of this position? What am I trying to learn? And yeah, I think in each position, depending on what your purpose and intent is, there is that uh, point of, you know, 
diminishing returns and it's you know it would seem the rational and logical step to be in the positions where you gain the most ROI and once that point hits where you're not getting the same ROI anymore then you would go into the next thing that will give you the high ROI for your personal growth and I think that's the that's the way of thinking it I think from a internal scorecard mentality instead of an external one where you're thinking what's the recruiter going to think yeah. of this uh two oh know? he's just been jumping around all over the place yeah although nowadays like i think that there's also there's the other side if you've been at an organization now for like in my like time if you've been around for 10 years then there's another question it's like okay well why have they been at that one place for that long? Like, why hasn't someone poached them yet? Or why hasn't someone, like, why haven't they decided to move on? Maybe they don't know how to grow personally. But but the reality is, is that it's all how you wax your story and how you communicate it. So as long as you're figuring out how you can go and build yourself or, um, or grow your career within one organization or multiple organizations, it's like, to me, it's, it's really asking, okay, well, what kind of roles are you doing and what kind of more responsibility or leadership are you taking on as you progress? Yeah, no, totally. And I think it, when I was in school, uh, we had the, the co-op program. And I think in hindsight, that was an amazing thing that I should have taken more advantage of. Like I, when I talk to university students now, I tell them about, man, that's a guaranteed short-term relationship that you have no commitment to take advantage of and try as many different things as you can like don't do what i did and stay with one firm for (laughs) three accounting terms just because that's the fastest way to get the ca but you can always do that later on yeah um it's so much easier to explore when you're younger than um, when you come out but even then like i've had three different careers and none of them have ever had two years yeah so um it's harder but still definitely doable well, it also just allows you to like expand your network. And for me, it's probably also there's probably some short attention span piece in there as well, but like the the interesting thing is is that there's a whole lot of applications um for what I've done in uh, like philanthropy to what I've done in branding to that have help me both on the the fun like the venture capital side to running a small business so it's and it and then now working at WeWork Labs it's allowed me to have a large kind of um, web of people that I can connect to a variety of different companies in different spaces yeah yeah it's it's funny how things like that turn out it's like as if you planned it but you didn't at yeah, all. It's just, no. it just ended up going that way no but you try enough stuff it's almost like you know, your career is like a block of marble and you're not necessarily um, like you're chipping away at all the different parts that aren't you. And the end result is the beautiful thing. It's not like you're going into it being like, OK, well, I'm going to make this this lovely bust of Daniel, Daniel, the uh, Michelangelo's Daniel, Michelangelo, Michelangelo, uh, David, Angela? David, David. Uh, I thought I had it. Anyway, I, I was thinking David. Yeah. 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 Um, but it's more, what's left over is probably the ideal thing that you want to do in your life. And I still don't think I'm anywhere near that. I think it's still a pretty ugly looking block of marble for me, but I'm definitely understanding a couple of things that I, I don't want to do. And, and a couple of things that really do like charge me up and make me feel energized throughout the day. Yeah, and so after this kind of you know, continuous searching, you ended up at UHN, where you end up staying a few years. So there was some, there's probably something that clicked 
there and you're doing more fundraising there? Was that where you started really growing your expertise in that space? What made you stay for longer um, than yeah, the previous yeah, tenure? Yeah. Well, there was a, a whole bunch of different projects across the board. The interesting thing about UHN and Toronto General and Toronto Western and Princess Margaret and Toronto Rehab are that the there's a multitude of different things that the healthcare system is doing. And like from a Canadian standpoint, from a Toronto standpoint, like UHN is this powerhouse of all of these amazing kind of cutting edge um, things that touch so many different people. So on the one side, it was neat to learn about all of these amazing kind of futuristic methods of saving lives. But then it was also amazing to talk to the like the patients who've been through these processes and to see how this had like saved their life or changed their lives for the better. Um, so when I got to work in interacting with these people, it was it was it didn't it didn't ever feel like a sales job. It was you know it was being able to provide and tell a story of how uh, a healthcare system and the people within it are making an impact on so many so many different people's lives. Hmm. And given that kind of role, how did you identify yourself? What kind of identity did you um, kind of behold? Was it someone who's like a salesperson, a fundraiser, or like you're doing so many different things and you've done so many things like up to that point? Did you have some kind of identity? Uh, not really, because like, and, and again, this is probably why I got the itch to to move on. Um, was that like? I was seeing, I, I saw myself more as like a, a connector because I was seeing all of these doctors and scientists and researchers who were building amazing technology or treating patients and, and I was helping go and talk to donors and tell them these stories of the impact. So it wasn't any type of cold call where, you know, like I'm trying to convince you and you've never heard of UHN or healthcare before. It was more these people were predisposed to understand healthcare and want to donate to it, I'm providing you with a story that shows that your money is making an impact. Um, and, and that was kind of the neat thing. So, you know, I got to do that from like groups that would come in and say, Hey, we're going to be running this golf tournament or we're going to be running this event and we want all this money to go to here. And, and I would help go and structure what that event would look like, how to communicate that, go out and find a, a patient or a story that would resonate there. And then like to the other side, like I ran um, this uh, at the Toronto Western, I ran the Fairchild Radiothon, which was like a telethon. Um, for, and Fairchild is a Cantonese radio station up in Richmond Hill. Um, and so people would come in, they'd be call, like calling in to go and, uh, talk about like they'd talk to doctors, they'd talk to nurses, and the moment the radio like the radiothon started, it's entirely in Cantonese, and so like for me, I have no idea what's going on. I, I do not speak Cantonese, but we'd have like people blocking the like the entrance to the Toronto Western because they'd be like driving down to go in line and give money because of the impact that. Um, that the Toronto Western Hospital had had on um, the Cantonese community. And that was really kind of amazing to see the impact of an organization, the impact of like a set of people can have on, on a large scale community. And that was really kind of uh, awesome to be a part of. 
Yeah. And um, so after, after that, you, you know, you have this kind of connector mentality and it seems very fitting that you go to your MBA at UT and then continue on to the Creative Destruction Lab where you're, it's kind of like an incubator where you're still connecting a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and it's, but you rejoined CDL in the early stages. Like it was, you're practically like one of the founding team members. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, a, you know, they've got their definition of their founding members. I was, uh, I was a student in the inaugural experimental class. Uh, like I remember getting this email, like probably in June between first year and second year. Um, and it was like this, Hey, we're testing out this class where we pair up MBAs with early stage companies. And, um, it's like a very select group and you need to fill out this long application where you're writing like these essay tests on how you'd value these companies and all this stuff. So there's like, I don't know that you give that to any MBA or any type A and and they're gonna see oh okay like this is a limited there's only a limited number of people who can be in this thing great okay i want in oh like i have to it requires a lot of work oh it must be valuable then and so um and and it was it was great because all the stuff that was in there was really interesting and through that class i learned that you know all of my answers that were on that first application were entirely wrong um but yeah so the the idea that creative destruction lab was one you know there is a gap in um the market for helping connect new burgeoning entrepreneurs with good advice and there's a lot of advice out there um but it's hard for an early stage founder to really find a the like to create the right filter to understand who to talk to and who not to talk to um, and, and the biggest kind of high level was, is that, you know, a founder has a thousand things on their to-do list that are all on fire. And if we can connect them with somebody that knows that to-do list, um, and can go and point out, well, I know all of these guys are on fire, but these are the three ones that you need to put out right now, then, um, then that's going to move that company a little bit forward. And as a result, they're going to succeed. And we're going to start to create a connection between that mentor and that founder. And the end result, hopefully, will be that um, that founder or that mentor will actually, you know, write a check and invest in that company. And we've then created a relationship that will start that company off on the right foot. Gotcha. And so the CDL, CDL it seems it's. I'm still trying to grasp my head around how these incubators work, especially the university-backed ones, like the DMZ at Ryerson. Yeah. Is it is it purely like fully owned by the university, funded by the university, and if they invest, the equity is like owned by the university? Is that how it works? Um, I can only speak to to UFT. Yeah, CD. Um, but yeah, there was no equity. Again, much like WeWork Labs, when what I really liked about it was there was no equity exchange between oh. the university and and the company and the program. The CDL program is actually entirely free, um, but it's a very rigorous, you know, again, limited number of people getting in and a lot of work up front. Um, that's your filter. And um, and the end result is, is that you can kind of pick and choose the, the, like, the pedigree of company going in there because that's where, for the CDL, 
that's going to maintain that mentor network, the, the G7 or ML7 or whomever. Um, those guys are only going to show up to that thing, one, if you value their time, and two, if you provide them with amazing founders that you know no, their normal path, uh, like their normal ecosystem is not going to find. And so like for us, it was a lot of fun because you'd go to all of these different departments across UFT, across the University of Waterloo and Montreal and Ottawa, and you'd find these amazing PhDs, these graduate students who are building some, some, some had like a framework for how they were going to make a business out of it. Others were just like, here's my patent and this, or here's my piece of technology. Like I, I really want to do something with this, like help me. And so we try to go and do that and that was that was pretty satisfying and so that this became a full-time job like you were a student as kind of helping out the CDL, and then you after you finished your mba you ended up doing this for like another two years yeah yeah so um we built up we went through about three cohorts um in like a standard kind of any type of any type of science-based ip and then we we recognized the uft actually had a pretty strong actually the strongest maybe outside of the university of waterloo um or sorry university of montreal um strongest bench of phd level machine learning and artificial intelligence like graduates and so we started to say all right well let's double down on ai it's going to be a thing and um and all of these scientists are either getting poached by they like the profs themselves are also like working as a chief scientist at facebook or google so there's something there let's go and find a bunch of different companies specifically in that vein let's go and find a bunch of different mentors and investors that are just looking at that the bleeding edge of um artificial intelligence and then let's build a large um conference that revolves around that and so that was kind of my final year at the CDL was building out the AI stream and seeing how do we scale um, our program when we only take 25 companies and usually eight or nine actually graduate. Um, how do we go and do that replicate it, but in the vein of an AI company? And are there similarities and what stark differences are there for that type of company versus the company that we traditionally see? Gotcha. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, you've... Uh, swell job at it because when I go to the CDL website, it's very, it seems very oh, yeah. AI, AI focused. And um, I think like we also now have like the Vector Institute in Toronto as well to yeah. help with the AI push. And it's uh, it's funny because when I talk to people from Montreal, they'll say, ah, they're nowhere close. And then we talk to people in Toronto, it's like, oh, no, we're close. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, but it's it's a good competition to have. And, totally. Yeah. And it what it does is, is it creates like buzz around trying to build something here in Canada. And I, I think that's the other big piece for the CDL and for a lot of the people in the kind of Waterloo, Toronto, Ottawa, Kitchener water, or like the corridor, whatever we're calling this little strip in Ontario is like, how do we go build amazing Canadian companies that go and scale and make a global impact? And, and that's what programs like across the board are trying to do at varying levels from, you know, that guy who's got an idea but has no business plan to that company that is like going and trying to figure out how it's going to raise its Series A and how it's going to scale like beyond North America. All right. And so after, after this time at CDL, you ended up going to Boat Rocker Ventures 
and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. Um, Boat Rock Romantic is the successor of Temple Street Productions. Yeah, right? yeah, which so, is where you did your internship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Temple Street Productions was a traditional, uh, well, I guess a sort of traditional uh, TV production studio, um, and then they were. Uh, bought by Fairfax and and became it rebranded as Boat Rocker, um, and their pursuit was to basically go and grow themselves by, through acquisition and also on uh, in in a smaller sh- frame go and invest in early stage media and media tech companies, um, and that's why I was brought on board because of that that opportunity. But I quickly learned that the venture team was a catch-all for a lot of other projects that they were doing, both on the property side, so just traditional like leasing and managing the purchasing of their buildings, to uh, like their hospitality investments, which had started um, way back with South of Temperance, but then um, spread out to the Landings Group here in Toronto, and then also a small a one shop coffee shop, Deneen, um, where. I spent a for like most of my time for the last year going and helping scale. So I'd started just typically on the VC side, looking at and investing in media-related technology companies. And the next thing you know, I'm knee deep in espresso beans, understanding the you know the the scale and understanding of coffee. Yeah, like I'm trying to I'm trying to unpack this. So how how did you get the start at Temple Street? Uh, I had met with a friend who uh, I had been talking about what I was doing, uh, my focus on venture capital and private equity. That's where I wanted to go. Um, also, just a general passion of food, which was evident on my Instagram and everywhere. And one of the guys that I had been talking with was saying, oh, well, you should talk to um, my bosses. Like they, they own a bunch of restaurants. They've got this TV production studio. Like, so they, it's like they, they're kind of doing it all. And, uh, and so I worked for them um, throughout the summer and I was just a, like the, the guy who tried to figure out how to get stuff done. And, and that was, it was a really interesting role because, you know, it taught me that, yeah, you, you don't really need a whole wealth of knowledge in a particular area. You just need the balls to go and execute on it. And that's exactly what those guys had done several times over um, at Temple Street. It was started uh, by these two lawyers who had seen that the biggest issue um, with making TV shows is that legal work lawyers are really expensive. And so these these guys realized, hey, you know what? We're doing all these deals on these shows that we'd never watch. Like, why don't we go pick some shows, save cost on us doing the legal work, and, and we'll succeed. And so they bought... Um, Temple Street Productions and then slowly started to go and choose better content and and they were just more efficient on the negotiation side and the same thing happened with um, how they built their like their restaurants it was there wasn't a restaurant around you know uh, for bankers and lawyers at Young or at Young and Richmond so let's go let's go and build it and and then next thing you know they were able to go and figure out how to go and um, run that restaurant and and then lastly the the same thing was happening with Deneen it was an idea that um, you know there's no 
ideal coffee place for a banker or lawyer in the financial core. There's there's great places and you know uh, like Starbucks for example is is kind of the standard for most people or in contrast you've got Moss Moss or or Dark Horse and so in the case of Dark Horse you've got a very hipster like a great coffee shop but it's going to be an intimidating thing to a lawyer and on top of that that lawyer is probably never going to take that client to either Dark Horse or um, or Starbucks because both don't meet the kind of you know um, teak wood like highly classy white marble exactly yeah, yeah. so it doesn't fit the brand of of you know the Tories lawyer or the Goodman's lawyer or RBC or TD so for us it was like let's make a beautiful place that is almost an extension of uh, of of one of those guys like their boardrooms so they can go and show off like casually hey this is well this is the kind of coffee and this is the kind of like restaurant space that you have in the downtown core it's giving that allure that we would see when we were in New York and you'd go to La Colombe and you'd see this beautiful space and like lovely architecture and delicious coffee so that was kind of the impetus for it and that's how we scaled or that's that was kind of the mantra in mind was let's build something beautiful and let's provide amazing coffee and beautiful service um, and people will come and I think we were right on that um, it, because all of those spaces are now incredibly busy and uh, and so it's been a it was an interesting journey in that space which all came back to the idea of okay we'll go out and find out how to go and do something go like hey we're gonna go build a coffee shop go find out how we can go and build a coffee shop yeah I think the when I think about restaurant business, a lot of people I think the rule of thumb, the rule of thumb when you're in like even business school would be, hey, don't start a restaurant business because ninety five percent fail, but also it's more like, but five percent succeed. Yeah. So what's the five percent doing? And I think the cool thing about hearing about that story is just, you know, the founders were lawyers, and it's truly catering to you know what's the audience that we know, and it's just you know it's like eating your own cooking you know, or scratching your own itch where. Yeah what did we want and yeah that's like the differentiating factor like not the the average joe restaurant guy or the average joe coffee shop owner won't know that world if they weren't part of it and that was like i guess that's where you're different and that's where you could actually succeed in um opening up Deneen and you know hitting up that niche audience or like opening up south of temperance which is a great bar which unfortunately it's gone now yeah. but it, when it was running it was highly successful um, and so, yeah, I think that that's, that's honestly, uh, it's quite fascinating for me when I like, hear about these kind of business stories where it's an, in, it's an industry where it's considered to be highly competitive and you're not likely to succeed, but you could also look at it the other way and find like, how can we succeed? Yeah. Yeah. It's a tight margin, but it's also, yeah, when you see all these people fail, it's, you got to understand what the noise is in the market and, and usually for us, it like came down to one like location and, and that's a mantra for all restaurants but like we spent a lot of time going and meticulously figuring out the ideal spaces for this and then building it around don't like not necessarily trying to specialize but be known for something or else um, or else it's going like if you're going to try to be everybody's like everything you're going to end up failing 
And so for us, it was, we need to, this place needs to be gorgeous and it needs to be the space that you're taking photos of and sharing everywhere. And I guarantee you look up the hashtag Deneen and there's probably countless number of girls in beautiful shoes just taking photos of the tiles on each of the floors or photos of the beautiful latte art that's sitting on some nice Carrera marble and those elements allow our brand to just propagate throughout the city and and a lot of other coffee shops are able to go do that through their design or through their product or or through their service and so we decided no we're going to make this place gorgeous and we're going to have delicious coffee mm-hmm. and so after you left temple street you know you went to the cdl and all that did you constantly keep in uh, contact with the boat rocker folks because you had kind of a thought back in your mind that you know i might do that later on well yeah like i'd worked with um the ceo john young he'd been a guy that i'd continued to stay in touch with because he was a great guy to learn a lot from i'd been one of the reasons why i went and worked at boat rocker was because of john and and his general idea like ideas around how to go and grow business and there was like for me going over to boat rocker it was okay i can learn a lot from working directly with john and understanding how he goes and attempts to go and scale a business um working directly with you know a guy who's like core is an entrepreneurial spirit is a great thing to have because you really start to um like approach approaching any no it's more like well this is a it's a, it's more of a negotiation it's like it's no right now but how can i change this so that i can make that a yes and so that was a lot of like both working directly for him and staying connected with them at the cdl i found a lot of um value from learning from him that i could then go and imbue onto the companies that i was helping at the cdl yeah and i think even boat rocker ventures itself is a very unique kind of investing company where you know, it's just so different from traditional companies where you have traditional private equity where it's a very LBO model or even when you're capital, they tend to focus on very asset light software companies or it has to be the quote unquote Silicon Valley labeled tech. Yeah. Um, but what Rocker saying this venture style investing for, you know, these low margin, heavily asset utilizing businesses, which still need to be funded. And it seems like they're playing in a very unique uh, market itself. Is that something that really um, intrigued you when you were looking to get more into like the investing world? Well, yeah, because it was, it was an interesting time to be in a media company because you had the rise of the content creator. Like you had the rise in a huge change in how production was happening. On top of that, you had a huge change in how um, like funding of traditional content was happening because one you've got netflix on the one side coming up and saying okay well we're gonna broker we're gonna take all of the content we're gonna pay these guys whatever they have but we'll have global rights to that content whereas the traditional broadcaster would say okay well we will own the rights within north america or within canada to go produce this show but then we'll give you the ip afterwards and you can go sell it wherever um, as Netflix grew in its like in its pattern and cable started to, to die down, the broadcasters started to renegotiate. Okay, well, actually, we're gonna like we're gonna keep the the rights to distributing that globally. And and as a production studio, you didn't have a lot of bargaining power in the guy who's literally writing the check for you to go make that TV show. Mm-hmm. So Boat Rockers 
reaction into investing into media, into acquiring large production companies was a result of seeing the, the tide changing and and the like purse strings tightening from their traditional funder. So either how do you go and reduce your cost or how do you go and extract more value uh, globally? And so that's where, you know, Ventures was created. There was um, a digital side, like a Boat Rocker Digital was built, um, which was around gaming and social, or like social media and uh, just general influencers. Boat Rocker Rights, which was a full um, department that's there to go and buy content and then redistribute it globally, all in the purpose of going and trying to figure out how to go and increase the margin that we could see from our our group. Um, and like my role in, in Boat Rocker was diverse because one, it wasn't just going to be looking at investing in media companies, which I quickly learned when I was there. Um, it was also looking at, okay, well, can we buy a television studio? If we've got this many different companies um, producing content for us, then, and we're basically taking the money from Bell or Rogers and paying for um, and paying for studio space, well, why don't we pay ourselves studio space and we can probably make that margin there as well. And so it was a, a, an awesome experience to work for a group of people that kept looking at that. It was like, there was no, there was never any like, well, oh, you can't do that because that's not what a production company does. It's like, no, 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 let's just go, let's find out, let's go and do that. Let's see what happens. And, um, and again, you know, if you fail, you, you cut your losses and you're like, okay, we can't do this. Let's close this down. Or it's, Hey, this is really interesting. And we've been able to go take that bet. Yeah. No, that sounds, it sounds like such an amazing opportunity, especially for someone who wants to take the path of an investor. And so you were on this investor path and then you ended up kind of becoming more like a full-time operator of a coffee shop. Yeah. Um, and I, I sent you the, uh, episode where I interviewed. Armin from Moss Moss is is your experience uh, similar to that in terms of operating a coffee shop? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've got like it's it's a different world to uh, to go and build a shop that is constantly on and interacting with their customers from you know morning to like basically six or seven o'clock at night um, and and on top of that it's a different different type of staff member. You've either got a barista who's doing this because it's a job and then like there's a five percent who are like blindly passionate about coffee um and you get to work with these people and you get to see how much they love like a, a product or how much they love Deneen. there are a lot of like um staff members who worked over time who really felt a connection to their team and to the brand um, and it was really interesting to see because it, like at, at a certain point you're seeing that the, the guys that I was working for were, had built this brand, but you actually see a, a team of people really take that brand and build a culture underneath it, which was kind of really neat to see. Um, but yeah, you know, you're, you're grinding out to make <laughs> literal grinding, um, to go and produce coffee for a variety of people. And, and it's. It's definitely uh, a tough business to, to go and operate and to manage, um, but it's really rewarding because you know it's it's tangible. You're not you're you're actually going and tracking sales and and the cost of like 
the business you can see right there and it's not you know you're you're setting up a contract that's going to last for this long or you're doing a consultancy or like a, a consulting job on this building x or some intangible component for a new organization no you're you're, you're trying to sell coffee day to day and uh and you're seeing if more people are showing up or less people are showing up and it's directly related to the decisions you're making uh in in that business mm -hmm. and so so far you know after your mba you were at CDL, you were kind of more of an advisor, investor, and then you're at Boat Rocker, a very investor, and at Deneen, now you're an operator. So you've kind of done the advising, investing, and operating train. Someone, you know, I, I might think that okay, after doing all this, maybe you'd go and be a full operator and be an entrepreneur of your own company. Um, what what was your decision like to, like, did you think about starting your own company after Deneen? Or, and like, if, if not, so like, why why did you end up not doing that and coming to WeWork? Well, yeah, I, like definitely that was where my head was um, as I was wrapping up opening the third location. It was like, okay, well, what's what is my what is the thing that I'm going to be blindly passionate about and grow? And and so I started going down that path of researching a bunch of different um, projects. And and while I was doing this, this opportunity came uh, like about for WeWork Labs where I saw an opportunity to go and bring something to Toronto that was it, like to me is a huge game changer and a huge piece of value. Um, as I started to do more and more research on why I wanted to work for WeWork, it was like I looked at it as I've never worked for an organization that large that's been able to scale that quickly and and has been able to grow its own culture and community so well like i want i want to go like i want to be a ghost in the shell and understand like what's actually happening in this space and um and so on, on top of that it's like it's providing me a role that you know lands on one of the biggest things that i've enjoyed throughout any of my career and that's connecting people to go and help them grow their business so for me I'd already have like that muscle trained and now I'm I'm being backed by a huge organization that is going and trying to to scale accelerators through WeWork's global scale. It was like, well, this is an opportunity that I can't I can't just uh like say no to right now. And and I haven't really like had any fleeting moment of regret. It's been an amazing team to work with and and it's been an amazing team like that uh, that I, I i now have such a larger reach if i was going and building a company and i was looking at doing something in in the like food and beverage space like my my network would be predominantly toronto and there's nothing wrong with that um but now like i'm interacting with people globally um, in in the innovation space, finding out what's happening from you know Shanghai to um, to Sao Paulo to New York to DC, and I'm learning that you know there's there's this huge space of all of these people who are trying to help companies, and uh, and it's amazing to actually get to interact with them, see what's working in their market, what doesn't work there, and being able to pull on their expertise to go help our companies. And uh, so for me, this was just a, an easy, 
uh, like a no-brainer that fit, you know, that, that checked all the boxes for a fit in the passion department for me. And then in terms of what I can learn from building, like from working in such a large organization, um, I think will help me go and build well, like help me go and actually scale whatever I was going to be going to do or thinking about. Um, so that's the hope right now. Yeah. No, and I think um, you put it so eloquently well in terms of how it fit with your mental model that you had envisioned. And so if you were to walk me through what your day is going to look like today, um, right now, <laughs> Tuesday morning, we're recording this. And so what, what does the rest of your day look like, if you can walk me through that? Yeah, so, um, well, right now I'm trying to find more companies to go fill my space. So I'm sitting down with, I think, three companies this afternoon to go and tell them about WeWork Labs, learn more about their company, and figure out how I can go and help them and if it's the right fit. Um, right after this... I'm actually meeting up with uh, um, Michael Kravishik from Luminary. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I'm going to tell him about the program, and I want him to be another part of my network to help these companies specifically because I think there's a huge opportunity there. Uh, and then end of the day, I've got our, like the labs, my lab manager weekly meeting uh, for all of the like it's Canada and the U.S. like that general call. So we actually go um, like all. I believe there's 10 managers on that call. We go through the wins, losses, and asks for each of us just to give an update and say, hey, you know, this was a, like, so for me, it's that we had our big kickoff last week. Um, I wanted to understand, you know, how people start to actually build out their programming. And, and then I just want general advice on how they manage their, their day as I start to go and fill this space up and understand how many companies I'm talking to. And then I wrap up by probably connecting with the um, the uh, startups that are in there and finding out if the connections that I've made over the past week have actually moved them forward at all. Gotcha. And so so far, you're not in your role. Um, what's been the like? Is there a kind of the most kind of big highlight, memorable activity that or task that you've done where you think this is why I do what I do? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I'd say it was. It was, uh, I was talking with a, um, a, vent- a Canadian VC um, and walking them through a couple of different like companies that we've been able to find and are now in our space and being able to be like, and saying, hey, I, like, I know this is, the, this is a great fit of a company for you. And to be able to go stump those guys on not knowing a company is, is always a good moment. And to see the connection and then go back to the founder and say, hey, I've got this, um, I've got this company or I've got like so-and-so from this VC is very interested in learning more about you. Um, like getting the email back saying, hey, that was a great fit. I'm, we're really interested in these guys. is satisfying to me. So that's, uh, that's what I hope to continue to replicate over and over and over with the companies that come through the labs here in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I'm definitely seeing a bit of corollary there um, with me as well, where like while doing this podcast, I've been meeting a lot of really cool people constantly. And so I have more friends now who come to me for advice yeah. since I started the podcast. And I think I've been able to find more jobs for my friends than yeah. I've ever been able to find for myself. And it's nice. It's nice seeing that kind of connection happen. And you, like it's a relationship. It's like food. Like it, 
you've created something yeah. different. And and you've helped two people be better off than they were without knowing each other. Yeah, yeah, totally. And but you know, in any job, there's there's always you know a downside. Like there's always shit you got to eat. But it's more what kind of shit do you not mind eating? Yeah. Um, and I think that separates whether you're in the right place or not. But what kind of shit do you not mind eating? Which that you think um, people who you know come to this with like wrong expectations might not really enjoy. Um. I think that, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of like, um, prep work that is required to go and follow up work to go and my day would be great if I could just meet with people talk with them for, you know, 30 to, um, 45 minutes each. And then there's no like afterwards making the, the, like the follow up like email to go and connect those people and then continue to follow up with them over and over and over to make sure that that thing happens. It'd be great if I could just send people off on their way and they'd be connected, but they're not. Um, you're changing the path of two individuals. So, and you're hopefully, you know, increasing the likelihood of them actually making either a transaction or working together or anything like that. And that doesn't just happen over one instant. It's like, you know, the, the, in, like the, the instant is you making the connection in your head like, oh, person A is perfect for person B, but you got to do a lot of work to make that thing actually happen. Yeah. So it's, yeah, that, and that doesn't require a lot of innovative thinking. That's just hounding two people to be like, hey, have you followed up with so-and-so? Like, or hey, you said that you were going to do this. You need to go and do this, right? So, so but that's, that's the fun part because yeah. when it actually, the reward at the end of that is that you've really helped somebody and, and that's why I'm here. Yeah, it's like the constant, um, somewhat convincing of like, hey man, like you said you wanted to do this, this, this person, like you're just going to be such a good fit and then you talk to that person and like you as the kind of, it's kind of like, sometimes it's kind of like the, you know, you're like omnipotent in that you see, you see all and you see both sides as you're playing a game. It's like watching a TV show. Yeah. Like, These guys got to meet. But, but how do I make sure yeah. that they meet in yeah. a way that's actually going to be... And how do I convince them to like get that? Why don't they get that yet? Yeah. Or like you talk, you talk to, you're saying, okay, well, I'm going to connect you with so-and-so at this, like, and you're trying to raise money from them. You're going to, like on both sides, you're acting, you're basically having that conversation with both parties. And then you're hoping that the conversation, like the prep conversation that you had with either party ends up being the exact same as the conversation that they have when you're not around. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, we're kind of hitting, I guess, like the final rounds of our interview and, you know, I have so many more questions I wanted to ask you. So I might, we might do a part two in the future. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Um, if you're down and, uh, but a question I like, a couple of questions I like to ask, um, all interviews near the end is kind of having you reflect a bit on your past. Um, if 20 year old Tom were to look at where you're now, so Twenty-year-old Tom and third-year Queens. What do you think his uh, emotional reaction would be to where you are at? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think he'd be pretty happy with it because uh, I like. I don't think he'd have any other like real understanding of any of the technology stuff because it, it. When I was doing commerce, it was much more marketing and kind of really general business one-on-one stuff. Um, and you know the concept of a co-working space was pretty much non-existent back then, um, but no, I think he'd be he'd be pretty interested. Like I think the one thing I wish it like old 
old man Tom telling 20-year-old Tom would be like, learn how to fucking code and uh, and go and like figure out how to go build a business right then and there um, because there's a ton of opportunity in that space. Um, but, you know, I don't. So that's why I've just continued to sharpen my MB, like my business skills because that's the value that I can add to an organization. Yeah, so the question, the second question was going to be, you know, what advice would you give to that 20-year-old Tom said to fucking code? Yeah, yeah. code. Code and uh, and go and take the, the risk of... I, I'd say the one other thing is is that, um, like, uh, coming out of undergrad, working for Caro is a great, like, great opportunity. But finding that startup, finding that founder, um, that job that doesn't really have a, a stalwart brand, but... There's something in either the the product experience or um, or some component of the business that you're passionate about. Go and do that because you're going to be taking on a lot more responsibility and you're going to be like probably failing. And that exposure to failure early on is going to make it like make you used to it. And and you're going to you know, it's going to change the way that you approach kind of risk. And chances are you're going to be better off in the long run because you're going to continue to fail and eventually you're going to hit something big. Excellent. No, that's uh, great advice. Um, thanks, Tom, for coming on the interview. No, yeah, thank it. you for having me. This was no, great. Yeah, I had a lot of fun too. Um, and I definitely think our listeners are going to get a lot of value out of it. Um, at the very least, they'll get to hear you know, the voice of the guy who helped bring Deneen to us. <laughs> great. All Have right. Fun. All right. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope the story was inspiring to you. It Hopefully it also helped you expand your perspectives. Hopefully it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different, maybe challenging yourself, being courageous. Who knows? But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow, in some way, contribute and help support the podcast, and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform, really think about being a stakeholder in the platform. And the quick way to do that is to go to my website, oldmandan.com, and go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. And the link is also down below. And that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe, follow to get more updates on the free content. But at the same time, also donate. And donate by actually just buying me a coffee. That's just how I put it. And you can buy me a coffee a month, coffee a week, or coffee every day of the year. And think about it as the way that you know, if you wanted to chat with me, you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee. Or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat, you might buy them a coffee. So I'm just think of it as I'm the service that's doing that for you. So you can just pay me in coffees. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, everything will still be free. It's just it would just really help if you would like to show your support this way so that I can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it 
all this isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further so your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute and so yeah just check out the website go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder all right thank you